listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. Rent Roll Radio listeners, welcome back to the show. We have a special guest that I'm super excited about having on today. He is the co-host of the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. He has 123flip.com. He is the author of the book on flipping houses. He's the author of the book on estimating rehab costs. He's the author of the book on negotiating real estate and my personal favorite, recession-proof real estate investing. We are super excited to have him on board. I've learned so much and uh, attribute a lot of my success to to stuff I've, I've picked up directly from his teaching. So, Jay Scott, welcome to the program. Thanks, Sterling. Thrilled to be here. I appreciate you having me. Awesome. So for our listeners that didn't come up through Bigger Pockets, which I don't know how many of them there are that aren't familiar with you already, can you tell us a little bit about your background and kind of how you got started in real estate? Yeah, absolutely. So I am an engineer by trade. So I went to college, became an engineer, went into the the corporate world, did that for a while, went to business school, back to the corporate world. And so I've always been interested in the business side of things as well as the technical side of things. 2008, my girlfriend at the time and I decided to get married and we were both working in, in Northern California. She was traveling like three and a half weeks a month. I was traveling a couple weeks a month. We never saw each other. We were just kind of living this life that wasn't conducive to getting married and starting a family. So when we decided to get married, we decided that we were going to quit our jobs. We were going to figure out something that was more conducive to starting a family. And But considering neither of us had ever done anything outside the corporate world, we had no idea what that looked like. So we said, eh, we'll figure it out. So we put our jobs in the spring of 2008. Great time to go into real estate. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> we hadn't even thought about real estate at the time. I had thought about like investing in like cash flowing uh, apartments or something, but I didn't know anything about it. And, and so summer of 2008, we're still trying to figure out what that lifestyle business that we wanted was, what we're going to do to kind of make money and, and also be able to put our family first. And we hadn't quite figured it out, but the wedding was coming up in a few months and we were sitting on, on the couch one day watching TV. And back in 2008, I mean, couldn't turn on the TV without it being a house flipping show. <laughs> and so uh, we, my wife turns on HGTV and she said to me, she said, let's flip a house. And I honestly thought she was joking. Like, I, I'm not a handy person. Like, I can barely change a light bulb. But she was bored, and she likes interior design and that sort of stuff. So she was being serious. And I said, okay, well, we're not doing anything else this summer. Let's go flip a house. <laughs> Whatever that means, I'll figure out what it means. So I picked up some books. I hopped on Bigger Pockets. I tried to learn about uh, house flipping. And literally the day we got married, our wedding day, we closed on the purchase of our first property. Awesome. It wasn't, we didn't go into it with the idea of this is going to be the first of many. It wasn't going to be a business thing. It was just the woman I was about to marry wanted to flip a house and I didn't want her to not marry me. So I said, okay. So we bought this house and we ended up buying a couple more right after that and more after that and more after that. And we looked back a few years later, I said, I guess we're real estate investors now. <laughs> um, and it wasn't really planned. And here we are 12 years later and we flipped about 400 houses and we've done buy and hold, multifamily, mobile homes, lending, notes, a little bit of everything at this point. And I, I guess at, at some point I'm going to start calling myself a real estate investor, but I'm not quite there yet. Awesome. So, why did you mostly flip in the early days? I assume now you probably hold a lot more than you did back then. Yeah. So we flipped for a long time because I'm not very smart. 
in retrospect, not that I'm not very smart. I, I didn't think enough about this whole idea of real estate as a business. For me, it was very transactional. You do a flip, you do another flip, you do another flip, you do another flip. And then it was a couple years in that I said to myself, you know, this could potentially be like a business and we should be treating it like a business and we should be generating cash flow from it like a business and we should be getting the tax benefits from it because real estate has some great tax benefits. We should be leveraging leverage and principal pay down and depreciation and all the other great things about real estate. So it was probably three or four years in, probably 2011, 12, that we started buying some rentals and then we progressed to, to some small multifamily and we're finally getting close to doing some really large multifamily deals. But yeah, it was a progression. And I remember sitting down with another investor, took an investor to lunch back in 2000 probably 2008 because it was, it was probably be, before I ever started or right around the time I started. And he had been a really successful investor and he knew I was getting into flipping houses. And I asked him that typical question that you ask when you don't know what to ask at lunch with somebody. It was like, so what's your best piece of advice for me? And I remember him saying, you're going to regret every house you ever sell. And at the time, I was like, okay, cool, thanks, appreciate that. And okay, let's, let's order dessert. And I didn't think much about that because I, I was flipping houses. That seemed pretty cool. And here we are 12 years later, and if somebody were to ask me the absolute best piece of advice I could give to anybody flipping houses, it's that at some point in the future, you're going to regret every house you ever sell. And I wish those 400 and some flips that we did, we would have kept every single one of them. I'm so glad to hear you say that because I've never sold a house and um, this year I'm burying a lot of houses and you know, as investors, we're often cash poor because they're always tied up in all of our properties. So part of me has been itching to be like, well, I mean, you could sell a few of these that you're fixing up and just have a big pile of cash, but it's like the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other. I'm, I'm debating back and forth. I'm glad to hear you say that. It makes me feel better about, about my decision to hold on to everything. Yep. So on that topic, though, I would ask, what's going on with the economy? Do you think, because you know, one of the main reasons I was itching to sell something to get a hold of cash was to take advantage of better deals in the future, in the near future, based on kind of everything we're seeing in the economy right now. So kind of what is your take on that? And is that a situation where you might consider unloading something to have some extra cash lying around to take advantage of some deal. So there's something going on in the economy? I hadn't noticed. <laughs> well, hopefully there won't be by the time this episode airs. Yeah, but yeah. In, in um, the middle of May when we're recording it, it's... Uh... <laughs> Unfortunately, I think there'll still be stuff going on in the economy when this airs. So yeah, first I'll, I'll say that I don't have a crystal ball. Nobody has a crystal ball. If somebody tells you what's going to happen or when it's going to happen in the economy, they're either lying to you and themselves or they're trying to sell you something. So I'm always happy to give my best guess, but please, anybody out there, don't rely on anything I say because really, I don't know. I'm just guessing like everybody else. So that said, there are some things that, that give us pause and make us think that we are likely going to be heading into a downturn. Obviously, we're currently in a recession and things are really bad, but a lot of this is artificial. A lot of this is, mm -hmm. has been generated not by the economy playing out the way the economy plays out naturally, but by some unnatural things. We, we've shut down businesses and people are scared to spend money and, and the Fed is, is releasing trillions of dollars into the economy and things just aren't 
happening normally. At some point in the next, hopefully, couple of weeks, maybe even a month or two, hopefully we'll get back to normal. Or when I say back to normal, we'll get back to steady state. We'll get back to some place where we're seeing what's really happening in the markets and not this artificial stuff that's happening in the markets. Where that's going to be, we don't know. I don't know if, if in three months we're going to look back and we're going to say, wow, that was a rough time and now everything's great again and it's like it was a year ago. Or we're going to look back in three months and say, oh, we're in a recession. My guess is that we're going to look back in, in three months and, and, or in three months forward, we're going to look and we're going to say, we're in a typical recession. We're not going to be at 24% unemployment. A lot of those people are going to get their jobs back and go back to work, but not all of them. Realistically, a lot of businesses are going to go out of business. A lot of businesses aren't going to see the same amount of demand as they were seeing a few months ago. And so they're going to have to start laying people off. And we're probably going to see unemployment at six, seven, eight, nine percent which is typical recessionary numbers. Likewise with GDP, people aren't just going to start spending money the way they were a few months ago. People are, are still a little bit shell-shocked and will be in, into the near future. And we'll probably see GDP numbers at, at zero or negative one or negative 2%, which is kind of, again, typical recession type numbers. So I think what we're going to see short term and long term is a whole different discussion, but short term, next three to six months, I think we're probably headed into what's will look like a typical recession. What I recommend people do headed into a typical recession, a few things. One, if you have any investments that you don't want to hold for the next five years, now's a good time to sell it. If you're going to have to sell an investment, let's say you have an investment that's losing money, it's, it's cash flow negative, or you have an investment that you know you're going to have to sell to pay for your daughter's wedding, or you have an investment that's like, it's the only thing you, you own in Anchorage, Alaska, and you just moved to Florida. If you're going to like want to sell something in the next year or two or five, do it now because you're probably at a be you probably have a better opportunity to get a good price for that now. If for no other reason than your buyers may be more likely to get loans now than, than they may be in a few months, now's a good time to sell. Not saying to sell if you're not planning to sell anyway. If you're looking to mm -hmm. hold something for five or 10 or 20 years, absolutely hold it. But if you're thinking I'm going to sell something in a couple years anyway, now's a good time. Number two, during a downturn, as we've already started to see, sometimes lending gets pretty tight. So we have to have a contingency plan for if we can't borrow money. And there are a few things we can do there. One, get access to cash. So again, if there are other assets that you're thinking about selling in the next couple of years, now's a great time to sell it. You have access to that cash. You don't have the opportunity cost of not having the cash. Number two, get access to credit lines. Now's a great time to be opening up personal lines of credit, business lines of credit, home equity lines of credit. Obviously, there's that risk of if the, the market starts to turn down, that banks and lenders can close those lines of credit or shrink those lines of credit. So if you really are going to need that cash for something, like you're going to need it to pay your mortgage or to put food on the table, or you know that there's a great opportunity coming along, you may even want to pull money out of those lines of credit, just stick it in a bank account. You'll be paying a little bit of interest, but at least you won't have to worry about those lines getting closed or, or reduced on you. So that's the second thing. Third, now's a great time to be working on your credit because what we're going to see as lending tightens, we're going to see that banks and, and GSEs, the large lenders like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, they're going to increase, they're going to tighten up their lending standards. And they're not going to lend anymore to people that have 620 or 640 or even 660 credit scores. They're going to be looking for 680, 700, 720 credit scores. So now's a great time to be working on your credit score. And then finally, even if you're not doing any deals today or tomorrow or next week, don't waste this time. This is a great opportunity to be learning 
and to be watching podcasts like this and to be watching webinars and to be reading books and to be networking, going to, to real estate investor association meetings, even if they're online these days, to be hopping on bigger pockets and, and reading the forums, whatever it takes, now's a great time to be learning and preparing and putting together your business plan and going out and meeting partners, people that have money and people that can help you on your real estate journey and be really prepared because there could be some great opportunities in the next three to six months. And you don't want to get three to six months in, the opportunities start to present themselves and you say, oh, well, now I'm going to start learning. Well, now you've already missed the boat by another three or six months. So start <laughs> learning now and start preparing now. So how long do you, do you anticipate the recession to, to last? And I, I know you, you can't know for sure, but you say five years. And I, I like the idea of five years because all my loans are due in five years. So if I, as long as I can refinance them in five years, I'm, I'm happy. But would you say that we'll definitely be out of the woods five years from now? So first, let me clarify if I gave that impression. I don't necessarily think we're going to be in a recession for the next five years. I pick five years as if you don't want to hold a property for X amount of time, now's a good time to sell. I pick five years. Realistically speaking, here, here's the good news before I get into what might be the bad news. The good news is a typical economic cycle these days is six, seven, eight years long. I know the last one was 11, 12 years. And so a lot of people think, these upticks in the economy last 10, 11, 12 years. That's actually very atypical. That was the longest economic expansion or the longest economic boom in this country's history. Typically, we're looking at six or seven or eight years. Now, it's easy to think, okay, if an economic cycle lasts six or seven or eight years, half of that's in a recession, half of that's the uptick, and then we go into the next recession and the next uptick. It's actually not that way. Fortunately, typically speaking, Recessions last a year, year and a half tops, and then the rest of that cycle, the other four or five years, are the, the boom period, the uptick, the expansion. So even for, for most typical recessions, 6, 12, 18 months is what we're looking at for, for the downturn, the recession piece. Even in a really bad one like 2008, we were only looking at like 24 months. If you look at kind of like beginning of 2008 to beginning of 2010, when technically we had moved out of the recession, we were at about two years now. Certainly things were still a little weird into 2011 and 12 and maybe even 13. But for the most part, the downturn portion was, was about two years. So even if I think this is going to be a typical recession, I think in a year and a half, we'll probably be out of it. Now, the question is, do I think this is going to be a typical recession? So the guess I made a few minutes ago when we talked about the next three to six months was I think in the next three to six months, we're going to see typical recessionary numbers. We're going to see six, seven, eight, nine. 10% unemployment, zero, negative one, negative 2% GDP. We're going to see consumer sentiment dropping. We're going to see demand dropping. We're going to see manufacturing tailing off. We're going to see retail struggling. We're going to see all these things that we typically see during a typical recession. The bigger question is what happens after that? What happens six months out or nine months out or 12 or 18 months out? And that's a harder question. And I will answer that with this. I think six to 12 to 18 months out, one of two things is going to happen. Either things are going to get better and we're going to move into the next expansion or things are going to get worse and we're going to move into a really major downturn. Now, I know everybody's listening to this saying, oh, great, you're, you're so brilliant. Either things are going to get better or worse. We know things are going to get better or worse. But I guess my take is things are either going to get better more quickly than we expect or things are going to get worse more quickly and more drastically than we expect. Now, 
whether it gets better or worse, that's going to depend on a number of things. And those are those, those unpredictable things that we don't yet know. But there are certain things, there are three specific things that I'm watching right now that will ultimately, I believe, lead us into either getting better in six to 12 months or getting much worse in six to 12 months. And here are those three things. Number one, we look back a few months and there are some people that were saying this was the greatest economy in the history of this country, the history of the world. There are other, other people that were saying that the economy was horrible and we were heading into a recession and things weren't nearly as good as anybody believed and it was all smoke and mirrors. And a lot of that's driven by politics. We all know that. Sure. What I would say is three or four or five months ago, we had a pretty average economy. Wasn't horrible wasn't fantastic. Certainly, there were some numbers that looked fantastic. Stock market was fantastic and unemployment numbers were fantastic. Then we had some numbers that looked really horrible. Manufacturing was in a slump. We were lowering interest rates. When you lower interest rates, basically, you're admitting the economy needs help. Sure. You lower interest rates to spur the economy. So, there were a lot of really mixed signals. I could list 100 different signals in the economy. 50 of them would have made the economy look decent. 50 of them would have made the economy look not so decent. We were in a really pretty mediocre economy that had some really good stuff and some really bad stuff. Now, where this leads into where we're going to head in six to 12 months, there were some things that were kind of on the verge of really breaking a few months ago, some things that economists were really worried about. Number one, consumer credit was and is at an all-time high. We have more consumer debt and credit out there than we've ever had in the history of this country. And it doesn't take a lot for people to start defaulting on that debt and that's snowballing. First, you can't pay your credit card, then it hurts your credit score so you can't refinance, so you can't pay your mortgage, you lose your house, you lose your job, all this bad stuff, and it kind of snowballs. Corporate credit and debt was at an all-time high. And when that happens, businesses stop spending, they stop expanding, they stop hiring, and that slows down the economy. So that could snowball. Interest rates are at 0% right now. They were one and a quarter, one and a half percent a couple months ago. They're at 0% right now. That can cause a lot of problems that can kind of mess up the economy. Manufacturing is still in a slump. And given all the backlash towards some of our trading partners like China, manufacturing could take even more of a hit because there's going to be some such a demand for domestically made products that we may not be able to keep up with that or we may start moving production to the US and that could increase costs. So there's some risks around manufacturing and there are risks around this and that. There are a whole lot of things that there were risks around a few months ago that if over the next six to 12 months, these things start to break and we start to see a domino effect downwards, that can really mess up the economy. So that's the first thing that I think we have to keep an eye on to see if something breaks and it either pushes our economy up or down in six to 12 months. Second thing is anybody that's been following along the last few weeks knows we have printed trillions of dollars in money. The Federal Reserve has literally printed $2 trillion. There's a bill on the table for another $3 trillion. I could imagine another two, three, five trillion being printed over the next few months. Literally, we are printing ridiculous amounts of money. If you look at the total money supply, the, the, the number that we typically use, which is referred to as the M2 money supply, there's about $15 trillion worth of US currency out there. If we print $5 trillion or 6 or $10 trillion, that's a significant percentage of the total money supply out there. We've increased the money supply 25 50%, which is a huge number. So what does that break? 
What kind of ripple effects does that have? What are the other unintended consequences of this, this shutdown? Look at oil. So anybody that's been paying attention sure. the last couple of weeks have seen there's talk of oil prices going negative. And literally they have. When we say negative, companies that are producing oil, that are drilling oil and taking it out of the ground, actually have to pay people to take this oil because there's no place to store it anymore. I mean, literally demand is so low, people aren't using oil that there's no place to store it. And unlike certain things where you can just kind of switch on and off, an oil well, you can't switch on and off. I mean, if they stop taking oil out of the ground in a particular well, they may never be able to open that well up again, or it could be really, really expensive. Oil wells don't just turn on and off. Mm -hmm. So they have to keep pumping this oil out of the ground. They've got no place to do it. So they actually have to pay people to take it. Now, this is one of those unintended consequences. It's funny because any economist I talked to is kind of like, yeah, this was an obvious consequence of, of this <laughs> pandemic, of this shutdown, that we weren't going to use oil and we we're going to need a place to store it all and we we're going to have more supply than we had demand. But as obvious as it is, I don't know anybody that three months ago was talking about Could this. Nobody was it. thinking yeah. about it. What are the other 10 things like oil that are going to break and it's going to be so obvious after it happens, but we haven't even thought about it right now? But if a couple of those things break, it could really mess up our economy. So that's the second big thing I think that's going to determine whether six to 12 months things go up or down is whether we're going to have any of these really unintended consequences of this whole shutdown and the Fed printing lots of money. You mentioned the Fed printing lots of money and, that, and I actually specifically wanted to ask you about this. When you, is there anything to stop that from causing massive inflation? So- I don't think massive inflation is a short-term risk. What leads to inflation is, and the reason why printing money leads to inflation is, when you print money, everybody gets more money. The average amount of money per person or business increases when you print money. And when people have more money, what do they do? They spend more. And when they spend more money, well, businesses need to keep up with all that demand. So they need to build more factories. They need to buy more equipment. They need to hire more workers. They need to buy more inventory. When people are spending more money, businesses have to spend money to keep up. And when businesses spend money to, to increase their, their supply and their output, that costs them money. They pass that cost on to us in terms of higher prices. So mm -hmm. more money in the economy leads to higher prices, which is inflation. The nice thing is that as long as there's not that increased demand, as long as people aren't taking that money and putting it back into the economy, we're not going to see the inflation because remember, inflation is driven by increased demand. Right now, people aren't spending money. If we end up in a downturn three or six months now, if we end up in a recession, typically during a recession, people don't spend money. Something that came out last week, a piece of economic data that came out last week is the April U.S. savings rate. Americans saved 13.8% of their, their income in April. That's the highest percentage of money that Americans have saved since 1981. People are really scared. And when they're scared, they don't spend money. They save it. They hoard it. So as long as we're in a downturn, as long as people are scared, as long as people aren't going out and spending money on, on luxury items and spending money on vacations, we're not going to see tremendous inflation. Whether we'll see inflation further down the road, like once we, we get past the recession or whatever is to come, once we get past that and the economy starts to pick up again, I think inflation's a real risk. Now, Here's the big question. So when it comes to inflation, there's really, we, we talk about demand, we talk about supply, but there's really only one thing that matters and that's productivity. 
So if a company has to go out and spend more money on more workers or more inventory or more factories or more equipment, that's going to cost them. They're basically just increasing their output without increasing productivity or efficiency. And that drives prices up. But if businesses can get more efficient, if they can make their products at a cheaper cost in a shorter period of time with less human labor and capital, then we don't necessarily see the inflation because the companies don't have to spend more. They can actually spend less and produce more. So as long as we can keep productivity up in this country, we're not going to see massive inflation. But if and when the time comes that we're not seeing productivity increase, we're seeing demand increase, then absolutely, inflation is a big risk. A lot of people say, well, that productivity should keep increasing because we're going to see a lot of automation. Automation is productivity. If a business can create their goods and services with a lot fewer cost, labor costs, if they can just get machines to crank out their widgets twice as fast at half the cost, we're not going to see inflation. Even if you dump trillions of dollars in the economy, if businesses don't incur a cost to increase their productivity or to increase their output, we're not going to see inflation. So there are a lot of questions about whether flooding the market with dollars is going to lead to inflation. And right now, I mean, the conventional wisdom is yes, it will. But right now, I can talk to two world-renowned economists who I respect more than anybody in the world. One could make a great argument for why we're going to see massive inflation. The other could make a great argument for why we're going to see massive deflation because we're going to see so much reduced demand. We're going to see so many productivity gains. We're going to see so much efficiency gains. And honestly, they both make great arguments. So I don't know if we're going to see inflation or massive inflation. I don't know if we're going to see deflation or massive deflation, but either of those actually tend to be really bad for the economy. And so if we see either, we have some risks. So certainly flooding the economy with money is going to create a risk, but is it an inflation risk? We don't know yet. Got it. And what's your third thing? Sorry, yeah, I and cut so you the off. third uh, unknown, the third thing that I think could potentially lead to either things getting better pretty quickly or things getting much worse is this whole lockdown thing. So hopefully in the next couple of weeks or at least the next month or two, we're going to start to emerge from this lockdown. People are going to get back to work. There's going to be less fear. There's going to be better consumer sentiment. People are going to be spending money again. But if in six months we have round two of lockdowns when the fall comes, or we have round three of lockdowns next winter or next spring, things could get really bad again. So I think the way that the, uh, the pandemic plays out and the lockdowns play out over the next year is going, to make, is going to be a big factor in whether things get better a year from now or whether things really go down the toilet. Awesome. So how are you using all of this? And thank you for sharing. That's exactly what we're looking for. How are you using all this insight to decide how you're going to invest. I imagine you got into economics to become a better investor. So what can we take away from that to apply to our investing to make us more productive and take advantage of so, the situation? Yeah. So what I would tell people is everybody's kind of looking to me and saying, Hey, what should I do now? What should I do now? <laughs> and I'm not scared to admit when I don't know the answer to a question. And right now I don't know the answer. It's not that I don't know the answer. But the answer is nobody knows. And what I'm recommending people do right now is to wait. And I, I know that's it's not a common answer in real estate. The, the refrain is always, it's always a good time to be buying real estate. 
it's almost always a good time to be buying real estate. But I'm comfortable right now telling people, wait until the lockdown is over. Here's the problem that we have right now. Because there are a lot of people that might want to be selling their houses that aren't, and because there are a lot of people that might want to be buying houses right now, but they aren't because of the pandemic, because of the lockdown, because of the shelter in place, because of the social distancing, whatever it is, there are a whole lot of buyers and sellers that aren't buying and selling. And what that leads to is a really inefficient marketplace. We aren't seeing true supply and true demand. And when you don't know true supply and true demand, you can't rely on the numbers that are coming out. You can't rely on the values of the underlying products that are being bought and sold. So because we don't know true supply and demand, we don't know if real estate prices should be trending up or trending down. Some point in the near future, again, a couple weeks, a couple months, we're going to see things open up. We're going to see sellers come out of the woodwork. We're going to see buyers come out of the woodwork. Depending on whether we see more buyers or sellers, we're going to see prices either go up or down. As we see supply and demand kind of fluctuate, is there going to be more supply? Is there going to be more demand by a lot, by a little? At that point, we're going to see if prices kind of go up and settle a little bit higher, if they go down and settle lower, or whether they kind of stay where they have been. But until then, we are only guessing at how much pent-up supply there is. We're only guessing at how much pent-up demand there is. And that means we're only guessing at where values are going to be three months from now. I don't want to buy a property right now taking the risk that in three months from now we could see an across-the-board 10% drop because once supply and demand kind of shakes out, prices have dropped. I would rather wait three months, see what prices have done at that point, and then kind of reassess the situation. Because at that point, I have a feeling that opportunities are going to emerge. Now, I might be a flipper and I might want to flip houses, but it may be that no flipping opportunities emerge. I have to take that risk. That's why I like to study other investing niches and other investing strategies. I might be a note buyer and I find that, uh, unfortunately, there are no good note opportunities right now and I might have to go do something else or wait longer. But what I'm telling people right now is get familiar with a bunch of strategies. Start reading, start learning, watch podcasts like this, watch webinars, go talk to other people and really use this as an opportunity to learn because in a couple months when things do shake out and we see prices either go up or go down and we see the foreclosure rate go up or go down or we see people defaulting on notes and we see better note deals or maybe we see multifamily sellers like having trouble refinancing and they start selling their multifamily properties, at some point somewhere opportunities are going to emerge. And when they emerge, that's the time to kind of go out and take advantage of those opportunities. So how do we know when we hit the bottom? We don't, but it's okay. We, we don't have to, to buy at the bottom. Here's the nice thing. I, I mean, uh, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are buy and hold investors. I love buy and hold. Here's the nice thing about buy and hold is that if you are generating significant cash flow or at least uh, sufficient cash flow, you don't care if we're at the bottom or not. You could sure. buy a property, a $100,000 property right now, and if it's generating sufficient cash flow, you don't care if tomorrow it's worth $10,000. Right. I always used, and I was, I was younger during the, I was in college during the 2008 recession, and I always say, like, I'm pretty sure I paid rent every month. <laughs> I don't think my landlord cared that the value of his house did this while I was paying his rent every month. Exactly. If you're planning to hold for five or 10 or 20 or 50 years, you don't care what happens to the value of that property on a short-term basis. Now, that said, if you are going to buy buy and hold real estate, keep in mind that in some places, 
during some economically difficult times, we do see market rents drop. Mm. Typically, it's not much. I mean, uh, if you look back at 2008, there were some places where market rents dropped up to about 10%. In a lot of places, they stayed flat. In some places, and for some asset classes, they actually increased. But if you're underwriting a new deal, if you're thinking about buying a buy and hold deal, you don't care if we're at bottom. You just care if the numbers work. So what I suggest to people now is assume things are going to keep going down a little bit. Assume market rents are going to drop a little bit. Factor in a 10% decrease in market rents in, into your underwriting. At the same point, vacancy could increase or you can see a few more later non-payers, which could increase your, your economic vacancy. And model in into your underwriting 10% higher vacancy. But if you're modeling in 10% lower rent, 10% higher vacancy, and the numbers still work, buy the deal. Because here's the thing, in a year or two or three, when the economy gets strong again, market rents are going to be back up, vacancy is going to be back down, and that deal that was decent right now is going to be fantastic in a couple of years. So definitely don't not buy because you don't know if we're at the bottom or you don't think we're at the bottom, especially for buy and hold deals. Now, if you're a flipper, it's more important to know if we've hit the bottom. And kind of what I look at there is I kind of wait until we start to see the tick up the other side. I don't try to time the bottom. I'd rather be, I mean, this is a common phrase, but I'd rather be a day early than, than a day late. And just the opposite when you're flipping houses after <laughs> yeah. a recession, you'd rather be a day late than a day early. So I don't mind if I miss that, that couple percent at the very bottom. I want to see things trending up again before I get in the market and then hope there's not a double dip. Got it. So going back on something you said earlier, you talked about how you started flipping houses and then you moved kind of into a buy and hold and now you're going into larger multifamily. Can you talk about why you made that transition and what you see the benefits of that transition are? So I still love single family houses. I own a bunch of single family houses, but I realized a few years ago that there are advantages to multis. Um, the, the economies of scale are great. It's a lot easier and cheaper to manage once, once you learn how to do it. Typically speaking, single families are, are typically more liquid and easier to sell, but multifamilies, you can generally, because they're, they're valued off of cash flow, a lot of times you can get a higher... You can force appreciation uh, yeah, through an increase in NOI. value out of a multi than you can in a single family home, especially if you're going to sell it. I mean, you don't know when you sell a single family home, if you're going to sell to a retail buyer who's going to base the value off of comps or an investor that's going to base the value off of income. With a multifamily, you're always based off of income. So it's a lot easier to know the value of your property. So I like... I've loved those, those mid-level, those mid-sized multis the last couple of years. There hasn't been a ton of competition there. What, what is a mid-size? How do so, you classify that? So for me, it's typically anything up to about 80 units. So 10 to 80 has kind of been our sweet spot the last couple of years for the prime reason that smaller investors, those that are investing in singles and duplexes and triplexes that kind of aren't getting into the quote unquote commercial world of five plus units, they don't want to be competing in the 20 unit space. They like their single families or their duplexes. They're comfortable there. So we don't have a ton of competition from, from those really small investors. At the same time, the big investors at 80 units or, or, or below, those are tough to manage. And the big investors, the ones that are buying the 150, 200, 400 unit properties, they like that. It's easy to manage. You put in full-time management, you hire full-time management, and you don't really have to think about it. The 10 to 80 unit space, you're tipping 
typically not generating enough to hire full-time property management. So you either have to do kind of a, a manager share with another apartment, or you have to bring in part-time manager, or you have to hire some contractors. And it, they can be really difficult to manage. But because they can be difficult to manage, nobody on the lower end, nobody on the higher end wants to compete with you. And so we've had a lot of opportunity there. So I've really liked those kind of mid-sized multis. And then these days, I've kind of always wanted to do the, uh, the syndication thing. And so for the last year or so, we've been looking for some, some much larger multifamily deals. We actually found two great deals, total of 450 some units back in March, just before the pandemic. But given what's happened, we kind of uh, put that on hold and we'll kind of reassess. Unfortunately, it's in Houston, which is, uh, which is struggling right now with the, with the oil crisis. Probably dodged a bullet there. <laughs> yeah, we may have dodged a bullet. So we're, we're, we're constantly talking about renegotiating and that price keeps coming down a little more, a little more. So we may at some point move forward on those. But um, I think multifamily right now is going to be pretty resilient during the next phase of the cycle. I think the, uh, the fundamentals are pretty good. I think risk pre- premiums are going to increase a little bit. So we are going to see cap rates go up a little bit, but I, I don't see tremendous risk in multis. So I still like the syndication model, the value add model, if we, if we can find the right deal. Awesome. Love to hear that. So thank you so much for joining today. Real quick, I want to go into our radio round just to help our listeners get to know you a little bit better. So first question is, what's your favorite book? Oh, I have a lot of favorite books. So probably my favorite book that people that, that I'm going to guess most people I haven't mentioned or no probably mentioned on the show is a book called The Goal. And it's all about efficiency in businesses. I'm a business guy at heart and I treat my real estate investing as a business. And so I'm always looking for ways to improve my systems and processes, both in my real estate business and my non-real estate businesses. And there's this book called The Goal and it's based on a a business principle called the theory of constraints. And it's all about basically figuring out what the largest constraint is in your business at any given time, kind of overcoming that constraint and then moving on to the next and kind of fixing the efficiency and improving and optimizing the efficiency in your business one step at a time. And it's a, it's a very popular book, but for some reason, a lot of people in the real estate world haven't heard of it. So for anybody that's looking to, to really improve their systems and processes, uh, it's called The Goal. Awesome. I'll definitely check it out. I hadn't heard of it, but it sounds awesome. What's your favorite quote? My favorite quote, Warren Buffett has a lot of great quotes that I kind of live my life by. So I'll throw out two. The one that I'm sure everybody talks about is Warren Buffett's uh, rule number one, don't lose money. Rule number two, (laughs) see rule number one. one. So I definitely live by that. I'm a pretty conservative investor and I'd rather pass up a deal than take a lot of risk. My wife is just the opposite. We actually balance each other out pretty well. (laughs) She's she's a risk taker. So we've worked well together there. My other Warren Buffett quote that I really love and I own businesses outside of real estate. So this is kind of, this applies to both, but it's, it's something along the lines of it's better to buy a wonderful company at a fair price than a fair company at a wonderful price. And I really like that. And it applies to real estate as well. I, I'd much rather get, especially for a buy and hold deal, I'd much rather get a really good piece of property at a good price than yeah. get an average piece of property at a really good price. Those are the kind of lessons you learn the hard way. 
absolutely. I got a, f- a few spots that uh, I don't necessarily want to own property and that I do own property. In. There are so many people that get into this business and they're just like, all I care about is the cheapest price and cheapest price, cheapest price. And, and there's, a, there's a lot more to a good deal than lowest price. Absolutely. And what's your favorite thing to do when you're not working? Oh, these days I have nine and 10 year old boys. So, um, so we spend a lot of family time, especially over the last six weeks. uh, We've kind of gotten into bike riding. We're going probably about a hundred miles a week with the family. So, uh, so we, we live a mile or two from the beach, which is nice. So probably going to the beach, riding our bikes, just these days it's mostly just family time. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Jay, again, Thanks for coming. We, we learned a ton. I was, you know, like a, a, a fangirl over here, super excited to be able to ask you all the questions that I've been wanting to ask you for a while. How can our listeners find out more about you, get in touch with you? So for anybody that's interested in business, and if you're a real estate investor, you are a business owner. Don't ever forget that. My wife and I have a podcast called the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. We talk to non-real estate business owners, but all the lessons that we take from it apply equally well to real estate. So please check out that podcast. Uh, We're really proud of it. My website, jscott.com. I'm on Facebook at jscottinvestor. And anybody that wants to get in touch with me, my email is the letter J at jscott.com. Awesome. Thanks again, Jay. Absolutely. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Crestworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at RentRollRadio or at Crestworth Capital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at RentRollRadio.com or sterling at CrestworthCapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing.